Luke chapter 15, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be looking at uh, the passage uh, in just a couple minutes. Uh, And Chip mentioned two of the stories that are in this particular text. There was one that was on the screen about halfway through the worship time. We are in a series considering the questions that are asked of Jesus. And the reason we're doing this series is twofold. One is that the questions that were asked of Jesus some 2,000 years ago uh, are very similar to questions we have today. Cultures change, uh, technology changes, but the human heart remains the same. And so throughout the fall, we're going to be looking at these questions because they say something about us. They say something about our neighbors. They say something about our classmates. They say something about our co-workers. They speak directly to the human heart. We're also doing this because as those of us at Green Tree who are, uh, consider ourselves disciples of Jesus, we have put our faith in Him and trust in Him, He's called us to go and duplicate disciples. He's called us to go and to share our faith with others, to share the message of His grace with others to the end that they too would put their faith in Him and the kingdom of God would grow. Well, if we study the questions that are asked of Jesus, we will, I think, be better equipped to talk to friends, family members, classmates, so on and so forth, about these issues of the human heart. The question that comes to Jesus this morning comes from a group of religious folks. They're people that are in church every Sunday. In fact, they're the leaders of the church. They're, they're synagogue leaders. They're, they're uh, the guys that run the temple in Jerusalem. These are the bigwigs. These are, if anybody's a good person, it's this group of people. If there's anybody that that follows the religious rules and does everything they possibly should, it's this group of people. And they come to Jesus and they say, why do you hang out with unsavory folks? Why are you hanging out with the bad people? Why don't you hang out with good folks like us? So if you look at the very beginning of Luke chapter 15, it says the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Those drawing near to hear Jesus. Tax collectors and sinners are unsavory folks. There are people that you would go, I don't think I'm going to have them over to dinner. Uh, they, don't, they don't dress right. They don't look right. They, they behave in a way that's inappropriate. I'm not sure if the kids are sitting around the table. They may not say something that's very off color. These are folks that we're just kind of, kind of, we'll be polite, but we're going to keep them at arm's length. But they are thronging to come and hear Jesus. They can't get enough of his teaching. And these religious folks sit back and they fold their arms and they grumble. They say, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, you say, Tom, that's not a question. That's a statement. And I agree. But behind that statement is a question. And in fact, if you go to Matthew's gospel and you look at a similar circumstance, they, they, these religious folks go to Jesus' disciples and they say, hey, disciples, let me ask you a question. Why is Jesus hanging out with unsavory people? So they do actually ask the question in Matthew's gospel. But the question or the attitude Behind the question is what we want to get to. And I believe the question speaks of two different things. The first is that the attitude of the religious folks is that these other people are rotten to the core. And they don't deserve God's care. They don't deserve to be in a relationship with them. They haven't followed the rules. They haven't obeyed the law. They haven't done all the things that, that us good folks do in order to be in right standing with God. So, so they don't deserve your attention, Jesus. But there's a more subtle statement behind that question as well. It's this, and I'm not one of them. Jesus, I'm not one of them. I do deserve to be in relationship with God. I have kept the rules. I have done everything I should. I am not one of those unsavory people. And so we're going to look this morning at Jesus' interaction with a question, why do you hang out 
with unsavory folks. Let me pray for us and we'll jump into this passage. Father, we, uh, we come to you this morning. All of us in, in need of your truth in our lives. Father, you don't present us with uh, options that could be true sometimes and are false at other times. You don't give us your word and then say, now you decide what you want to pick and choose. Father, you are truth. You speak with eternal authority. And we need that, Lord. We need to know our condition. We need to know your attitude towards us. We need to know if there is hope for us. We need to know if you are gracious or if you are vengeful. We need to know if you are compassionate or if you want to have nothing to do with us. We, we need to know if, if you're involved in our lives or if you're disinterested. And Lord, we can, we can assume all day long, but it won't help us any unless we hear your voice, your truth. And we thank you that you give us your word. We thank you that it is eternal truth. We thank you that we don't have to come here and, and try to discern the words of man. We do that six days out of the week. Lord, what I have to say is, is only one person's opinion. And it's completely um, void of any power to change anyone's life. Mine at the, at the very front of the line. Lord, it is only your eternal word that can do that in our hearts and minds. So whether we realize that need or not, Father, this morning, whether we come with more questions than answers or whether we come filled with self-righteousness and think we've got it all figured out, Father, I pray that your truth would permeate our hearts and our minds. Lord Jesus, forgive me for my sin. Don't let me stand in the way of what you want us to know this morning. But your love, your character for lost sinners. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. The way Jesus is going to engage with the religious folks who are posing this question is by kind of turning it around and asking them a couple of different questions. The first question that Jesus is, is going to ask them, in a sense, is, is based upon the first two stories. And if you were here at the outset of the, of the morning, you heard the, the story of the lost sheep. Uh, you read, if you were here in the worship time, the story of the lost coin. And Jesus is asking his, uh, his audience, his, these scribes and Pharisees, two questions. And the first one is basically this. What is it like to lose something that is precious to you? What is it like to lose something? Not someone. We'll get to the someone in just a minute. But what's it like to lose something that is of vital importance to you? If you were paying attention the last couple weeks, and you'd have to really, really be paying attention the last couple of weeks, uh, you would have noticed that I was not wearing a wedding ring the last two Sundays I was preaching. A couple weeks ago, we had a staff retreat down at Lake of the Ozarks. And we came back from that staff retreat, and I could not find my wedding ring. And my, I don't, she might know it. I don't know if she does or not. Cindy's here this morning. I tore the house apart looking for that wedding ring. I could not find it anywhere. Our wedding rings are actually, I don't know if they're identical, but they are, they were made by the same jeweler and he does the same design. He kind of burns the silver on the inside and then lays little pieces of gold. So our, our wedding rings are matching wedding rings. So I didn't just lose any everyday, ordinary, you know, run of the mill wedding ring. I lost the matching wedding ring. And about four days ago, five days ago, uh, Sia Whitaker, who's on our staff, comes into my office and she says with a bit of a smirk on her face, did you leave something down at the lake at our staff retreat? And I said, if it's not my wedding ring, I'm going to kill you. So she goes, yes, and they're going to be sending it back. I'm like, thank you very much. So I am now this morning wearing my wedding ring. You cannot imagine what it felt like to lose something precious to me because of what it stood for. Have you ever, I'm not talking about misplacing your wallet. 
I'm talking about you know misplacing, misplacing something that is of vital importance to you. Nancy Canassi, after the first service, said years ago she was in a women's restroom at a theater, and she came out, and she had a big wad of cash in her hand that she found laying on the floor. She said, I looked around the lobby, and she goes, I was kind of going like this, and I saw there's the person who lost it because they had this dread, panicked look on their face. And Nancy came up and said, oh, here, I found it. It's okay. And she goes, oh, my gosh, I can't thank you so much. That's my rent. That's our grocery money. That you know, This is a person who was living month to month. Ever had that experience? What's it like when you lose something that's precious to you? The second question that Jesus asks is, what's it like to lose a child and then to get them back? You ever been to the grocery store and you turned around and they weren't there and they, had, you know, they were on the other aisle or you're in a clothing store and they've, they've kind of hidden behind a rack of clothes and just for an instant they were gone and then to find them, well, how that feels. Um, if we ever watch a movie at home, uh, you know, on Netflix or whatever, and it has children in the first minute or two of the movie. Cindy looks at me and she basically says the same thing. Have you seen this movie before? Right? And, and, and I'm looking at these kids and she wants to know what? Is anything going to happen to the kids? It could be a Disney movie, okay? It could be like the most lighthearted movie in the world. She goes, does anything happen to the kids? Because if it is, I'm not watching. Right? Because our children are what? They're precious to us. They're, 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 they make up so much of our lives. They're the object of some of our most deep affections. And Jesus says, if, if we're going to get into this conversation about why I hang out with savory people, uh, Pharisees and scribes, you're going to have to ask yourself a question. What's it like to lose a child and then to get them back? Well, let's talk about the lost things for just a moment. Jesus says, how about a guy who's a shepherd? And he's got a hundred sheep and he loses one. What would he naturally do? He goes out to the, leaves the 99, he goes out until he finds it. When he finds it, he comes home and he calls his friends. He says, says, come celebrate with me. I have found my lost sheep. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous people who need no repentance. He says this is a natural thing. A shepherd loses a sheep. He leaves the group over here and he goes to find it. What about the woman? He says, or suppose there's a woman having ten silver coins and she loses one. And one of those coins is worth about a, a day's wage, maybe at times a week's, a week's wage. So this is not like I lost a dollar. It's a, a substantial amount of money. What does she do? Does she not light a lamp and search diligently until she finds it? Now, Jesus is even taking the, the, the example to the extreme and saying she's about to go to bed. It's nighttime. It's dark outside. Because lighting a lamp actually costs you money in Jesus' day and age. You had to buy the oil. And she's about to go to bed and she's counting and she only comes up with nine. What's she do? Everybody out of bed. Turn on the lights. Scurry the house. Look everywhere you possibly can until you find that which is precious to you. And when she finds it, what does she do? She calls her friends. Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin I lost. There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. What is Jesus challenging the scribes and the Pharisees? He's saying this. What would you do if you were God? Put yourself in his shoes. He has lost something that is precious to him. Sheep are precious to us if we're shepherds. Coins are precious to us if we're employees. Unsavory people are precious to God. How could he possibly abandon them? What kind of God sees a world that is broken and racked with sin and destruction and death and coldly turn his back and say, I won't have anything to do with those folks? Jesus gives the Pharisees and the scribes and he gives you and me a chance this morning just in case we struggle with self-righteousness. 
just in case we live but righteousness by comparison. You know what that means, right? I don't have to be the best. I just have to be better than you, right? I just got to be better than somebody, right? So Friday night, Cindy came home after work, all tired Friday night. And she walks in the house and there's a, she walks in, there's a, a gift wrapped up and there's a big bouquet of flowers in a, uh, in a, in a glass vase. It's not our anniversary. And it's not her birthday. And there's a card inside that instructs her to be ready at 6 p.m. sharp. I'm going to pick her up and we're going to have a wonderful evening together. And we go out to a lovely dinner and we go to the Ritz-Carlton and spend the night. I'm better than most of you guys by a long shot. (laughs) By a long shot. Now, I'll dial it back a little bit. Scott, you remember when I got my doctorate? You remember what you guys gave us for, for a gift? You gave us a free night at the Ritz-Carlton. <laughs> Six years ago, I found that gift card. <laughs> three, three days ago. <laughs> so we, we go to Kimo's. We have a wonderful dinner. We go to the Ritz. We have a wonderful night together. Uh, in comparison, I'm better than at least 80% of you. I'm good to go, right? That's what righteousness by comparison. The Pharisees said, we don't have to be the best, but we're better than the unsavory. And Jesus says, wait a minute. You don't have the mind of God here. These are precious to him. We're not saying Jesus doesn't say they're not unsavory. <laughs> he simply says, even in their brokenness, even even in everything about them that offends you, they're precious to God. How could God do any different? But then he takes it a step further, because even if I lost my ring, that really couldn't compare to losing a child. Not even close. That, you can't you can't even say the two in the same sense. Jesus, says, what happens if you lose a son? Then what do you? Let's look at the lost son for just a moment. Verses 11 through 13 of chapter 15. He said, there was a young man, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. He divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey to a far country. And there he squandered his property on reckless living. Now, a lot of you may uh, be very familiar with the story of the prodigal son, so this part may be a bit repetitive, but there are probably some of you that have not heard the story before or are only vaguely familiar with it. You need to understand in our day and age, it's no big deal for a son to come to a dad while the dad's still living and say, hey, can I have a little bit of my inheritance ahead of time? My parents were very generous in, in, in allowing us to have a piece of property to build a house on, and, and they did it very graciously, and there was nothing wrong with that. For a son to come to a father in Jesus' day and age and to say, Father, can I have the money now? Is, and I'm not over-exaggerating this. It is as if the son is saying to the father, I wish you were dead. You don't matter a thing to me except the resources for which you can provide. And it was the greatest insult that was possible. As, as the scribes and Pharisees were listening to this story, Jesus says, he's got this younger son. And this, the son comes and says, could I have my share of the property? Everybody in the audience would have gasped. That would have been shocking and revolting at the same time. They realize that this is a son who rejects all family ties in the strongest possible terms. This is an unsavory person. And so the father... What? He gives him the money. And he patiently allows the son to take the journey where he promptly loses everything. And then the son experiences the results of his choice. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. He began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. 
I'm going to go down a little bit of a side road here, but there's great wisdom in the Father allowing the Son to go and experience the pain of His choice. There are times when we say to our children, no, I'm not going to let you do that because there, there are moments where we protect our children from harming themselves by choices they make. But there are other moments where it is the better part of wisdom as a parent to say, I don't have a son right now. He's, he's, he's of no, has no interest in a loving father-son relationship. If I keep him here, I'm simply going to further enslave him. I need to let him go. That's the only way possible he's going to learn. And the father in this story is obviously a figure of God. But there's a great parenting tip here. I want to talk to parents for just a minute. If you still have teenagers or younger in your home, I want to challenge you to look at this father and to, and to see that there are moments when rushing into the rescue and not allowing your children to experience pain because the choices they've made is actually bad parenting. I'm going to read for you briefly out of an article that Lori Gottlieb wrote. Lori Gottlieb is a very famous clinical psychologist. As far as I know, she is not a Christian. She wrote an article in the July-August issue of Atlantic Magazine. And the article is entitled, How to Land Your Kids in Therapy. <laughs> Great title. And, and I'm going to take a minute. This is a couple of paragraphs. But, but I want you to get this, not only in the context of this story of this patient father, but also as we think about raising our own children. She talks about working with, with young folks who are between about 25 and 35 years of age. She says, after working with these patients over time, I came to believe that no floored denial or distortion was going on. They truly seemed to have caring and loving parents. Parents who gave them freedom to find themselves and the encouragement to do everything they wanted in life. Parents who had driven carpools and had helped with homework each night, and had intervened when the bully at school, with the bully at school or on a birthday invitation that was not received, and had gotten them tutors when they struggled in math, and music lessons when they expressed an interest in guitar, but let them quit when they lost interest, and talked them through their feelings when they broke the rules instead of punishing them. Logical consequences always stood in for discipline. In short, these were parents who had always been attuned, as we therapists like to say, and had made sure to guide my patients through any and all trials and tribulations in childhood. As an overwhelmed parent myself, I'd sit in these sessions and secretly wondered how these fabulous parents had done it all. Until one day another question occurred to me. Was it possible that these parents had done too much? Here I was, seeing the flesh and blood results of the kind of parenting that my peers and I were trying to practice with our own kids, precisely so they wouldn't end up on a therapist's couch one day. We were running ourselves ragged in a Herculean effort to do right by our kids, yet what seemed to be like grown-up ver versions of them were sitting in our offices saying that they felt empty, confused, and anxious. Back in graduate school, the clinical focus had always been on the lack of parental care and how it affects the child. It never occurred to any of us to ask, what if the parents do too much? What happens to those kids? Again, I don't want to go too far afield this morning, but let me encourage every mom and dad in this room to think carefully about the appropriate moments to allow your children to suffer the consequences of the decisions they make so they can better understand how to make correct choices. Because what saves this son, so to speak, is sitting in a pig pen. What happens to this young man is when he realizes that he has created this mess 
and that, that he has done so by abandoning his family, something begins to click in his head. Look at verses 17 through 20. When he came to himself, what does that mean? When he came to his senses. When he woke up and went, you remember that old V8 commercial? Oh, I could have had a V8. He has one of those moments. Oh, I've got a dad. Okay. How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? And I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose. And he came to his father. The son realizes that he is lost. But he also remembers that his father is a good man. He thinks back about his father. He says, you know what? He's got a bunch of people who work for him. He takes real good care of them. Three square meals a day, gives him a fair wage. There's no way the old man's going to take me back after what I've done to him. I mean, I basically told him I wish he was dead. And on top of that, I've wasted everything. And he was always a great saver and a great financial planner. He always you know, planned for the rainy day and told me to do the same. And I've totally blown that, so I can't be a son anymore. But you know what? He's good enough. He'll probably take me back as a servant. And the, the wheels begin to turn. The wheels would never have turned if the next verse read, and the father rushed to a foreign country and pulled him out before he experienced any pain. And the spiritual is true as well, friends. When we go our own way, even those of us who, who love the Lord and, and, and Jesus is our Savior, we're mature disciples, we're growing in our faith, aren't there times when we say, no, nah, I'm not going that way, I'm going to go this way. And the Father allows us to do that. Why? So that we understand what happens when we see ourselves as something other than sons and daughters of God. I was asking our staff this week, they ever lost one of the kids in a, you know, like in a store, that sort of thing. And Porter, our business manager, said, Emerson, uh, about four months ago, they were over at the Alpine shop, and she was kind of going in and out of the clothes. And Emerson was just about tall enough that if you wanted to see her inside, like where a whole bunch of jackets were, you'd have to bend down because all you'd be able to see is her feet. She, would, you know, she wouldn't stick out. And she was having the time of her life until she realized that mom and dad hadn't come to look for her. And she realized that she didn't know where they were. And she realized that she was lost. And he said, you heard this blood-curdling scream all over the entire, you know, over the entire store. And we let her come to try to find us. You know, she got, probably everybody thought we were bad parents, but we wanted her to know that, you know what, getting away from mom and dad isn't always the best choice. And so this son begins to come to his senses. And he begins to think about his father's character. And that he's a good guy. But he hasn't quite gone far enough. Look at verses 20 through 24. So he's traveling on his way. While he was still a long way off, his dad sees him. So, I don't know, a couple hundred yards down the road, dad maybe is on the front porch or he's out working in the field and somebody taps him on the shoulder and says, is that, is that Junior coming down the road? The father saw him and he felt compassion. He ran and embraced him, kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you before you. I'm no longer worthy because your son. He starts in on the speech. He's probably been rehearsing it all the way home. And the father interrupts him. In fact, the father isn't even listening. The father says, shut up for a minute. Servants, come here. Get the best robe. Put it on him. Put the ring on his hand. Put shoes on his feet. You see, what the son overestimated was his own reasoning. He was not yet repentant. Some theologians say he's coming back and he's offering repentance. No, he's not. He's trying to negotiate a deal. He hasn't quite come to the end of himself yet. And the father will have none of it. Because he refuses to have slaves. He will only have sons. And it's as if this message bounces off his head. And he already starts giving instruction to the servants. And he says to him, bring all this. And then on top of that, bring the fatted calf, kill it, let us celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began 
to celebrate. The son not only overestimated his own reasoning, he underestimated his father's character. The father ran to him when he saw him at a distance. No Jewish man would pick up his robe and run. That was the most undistinguished thing you could possibly do. Again, a gasp would go up from the crowd when they were listening to the story. He ran? Are you kidding me? This dignified man runs for this guy? That's insane. Not only does he run, but here comes the smelly, dirty kid who hadn't eaten in a week, who is just terrible, his hair's gnarly, hadn't had a bath, and who knows how long, and what does he do? He embraces him. And he kisses him. And he ignores his comments. He goes, get the robe. The robe what? The robe, that's my robe, that shows that he's in my family. Give him the ring, the family ring that shows our signet. So everybody knows that he belongs to me. Put sandals on his feet because he is not a slave. Right? Junior, forget that stuff about the slave. He's a son. The son wears shoes. The character of the father in loving this lost son. He says, let's celebrate. And the son gets to repentance. And here's where he gets repentance. It's very subtle. They began to celebrate. The son allows the celebration to happen. He says, okay, father, I will be a son. And when he allows the party to break out, that's when it happens. And friends, a lot of us have a hard time letting the party break out over us. A lot of us say, God wants to rejoice over you. And you go, I know God wants to rejoice over my wife. I know God wants to rejoice over my kids, but he certainly doesn't want to rejoice over me. And we have a slave mentality. And God says, Tom, I won't have anything to do with that. You're a son. You need to understand that. It's the foundation of your life. And so this one who we call a prodigal is restored. But this is not the story of the lost son. It's actually the story of the lost sons because there's another son who's in a bit of a pickle. Look at verse 25 through 30. Now the older son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing. He calls out to one of the servants. What's going on here? The servant tells him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. The older brother is just as lost. He's done everything right on the outside. He's done every chore dad ever gave him. He did it and did it with a smile on his face. Every time the dad needed something handled, he would step up. When dad said it's time to go to church on Sunday morning, they all piled in and he, he went to church. He did all the good things that good people are supposed to do, right? And how did he see himself as a son? No. All these years I've been your son, not what the text says. All these years, I, the literal word in the Greek, all these years I have slaved for you. Some of you maybe come out of a Canuck background and you know about their doulos ministry, which is the ministry of the slave. Doulos in Greek means slave. Exact word that's used in this passage. But he doesn't understand he's a son. He understands. He thinks he's a slave. He has that mindset. But the father is just as assistant. He will not have slaves. He will only have sons. So how does the father reply? But and he finishes up, the son has squandered all your money on prostitutes. You kill a fatted calf for him. But the father says what? Son, you are always with me. And all that I is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The father says to him, son, well, talk to me about slavery. <laughs> We're talking about our family. And I insist on having sons. The older brother misunderstood the bond. The bond is not a bond of effort. 
The bond is not a bond of duty and obligation. It is a bond of blood. You're my son. You're my offspring. You belong to me for no other reason. Not for what you do, but for who you are. When our kids would do something great when they were younger, um, a lot, sometimes I would grab them and I'd hug them and I'd wait to go and kiss them and I would say this. Now, does this make me love you anymore? You know, you got good grades on your report card or you made the team or, or whatever. Does this make you more of a child of mine? And they would oh, Dad, come on. No, answer the question, does it? No, you love us no matter what we do. Okay, great. I just want to remind you that. And then when they would mess up, we'd go through the discipline and we'd go through the correction and whatever we need to do. But then I'd grab them and I'd hug them. And I'd kiss them. I'd say, no, let me ask you a question. Does what you did make me love you any less? You know, that's the moment when it's hard to get eye contact because they're looking down. They're kicking the dirt like the sun, right? Who's standing out there saying, I sinned against heaven against you. And I make them look at me. Do I love you any less? No. Why? So I'm your daughter. I'm your son. That's exactly right. Don't you ever forget it. And the father will not let this one who sees himself as a slave stay in that lie for another moment. The son misunderstood the bond, but the father's going to correct it. But also notice where that misunderstanding led. Look at the venom in his voice towards his younger brother. He, he says to him, when this son of yours, not my brother, when this son of yours, when this unsavory one, all right? Now the Pharisees and scribes are going, uh-oh, <laughs> he's talking to us. That's exactly right. Just like he's talking to me this morning to you. This son of yours came has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fatted calf for him. Let me read for you just real briefly what Leon Morris writes about this because I think he, he captures the older son's attitude so absolutely perfectly. The elder son's reaction was anger. He would have no part of this at all. He refused to go in. But there was no false pride about the father. He had already gone out to meet one son. He now goes out to plead with the other. But he's met with a torrent of words and the pent-up feelings of years that come tumbling out. The elder son was conscious of his own rectitude. He was completely self-righteous. He saw himself as the model son, but his use of the verb doulos, the word doulos, to serve as a slave, gives his true attitude away. He did not really understand what it meant to be a son. That, perhaps, is why he could not possibly understand what it meant to be a father. He could not see why his father should be so full of joy at the return of the prodigal. And then he talks about me and maybe about you. The proud and the self-righteous always feel that they are not being treated as well as they deserve. He cannot refer to the prodigal as his brother, but as this son of yours. Let the father welcome him if he wants, but he disowns him. He speaks of the younger man as having spent his father's money on harlots, which goes beyond anything said previously and maybe was his own invention. He comes to his climax that it was for him that the father killed the fatted calf. You see the hatred that has been created in his heart by the self-righteous slavery. He looks very nice on the outside. But on the inside, he's just as ugly as his brother's outward, younger brother's outward appearance had been just a little while earlier. What are we going to say about this? What do we do? How do we apply this text? If we're going to grow in faith, if you're here this morning and you're a disciple of Jesus and you want to take discipleship seriously, you want to grow in the grace of God and you want to build the kingdom of God, I think there are two things that we have to see. The first one is that unsavory people are precious to God. They're lost. He will always seek them and He will always celebrate 
when they repent. And so one question is, do we have the seeking heart of God? If we're disciples of Jesus and and we're being transformed into His image, how can we not have passion for the lost? How can we not care about those that may be considered by others as unsavory? Because what we truly understand, friends, is that we too are an unsavory lot. (laughs) We're not here because we're good. We're not here because we're better. We're here because of grace. But that grace drives us to understand that we are children of God and not slaves. And we join our Father gladly and joyfully in His mission to reach others. Both sons had the mindset of slaves, which led to rebellion on the part of those who saw themselves as unsavory and self-righteous to those who saw themselves as better. But the net result was the same. There was hatred towards the brother. I think Green Tree lives in a day and age where a lot of people are very spiritual, but they don't see church as a pathway to God. At least not a necessary one. It might work for some, but not for me. And it's a, it's a day and age like this day and age when people maybe subconsciously didn't understand it, but they really had a slave mentality. The only people that can help rescue a slave are the free. And in the context of this story, the only ones that are free are the children of the Father. We must embrace being sons and daughters of the living God and allow His truth and His character and His Spirit and His Word to so radically change our lives that all we want to do is go find the unsavory brother and bring him home. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that Jesus accepts the questions. Why do you hang out with those kind of people? Because, Lord, we maybe would never verbalize it that way, but a lot of us have that kind of mentality. Father, the other side of the coin is there are people here this morning, I am quite certain, that see themselves as beyond being able to be saved. They, they, They feel like they've messed it up so badly, there's no way God could ever love them. Lord Jesus, help us to see your answer to that question. Even even if you've blown it terribly, you're precious to God. And if you're a son or daughter who thinks like a slave, that can change too. Lord Jesus, we, we won't join you in your mission. We won't reach out into this world until we understand we are sons and daughters of God. So teach us that this morning. Let us throw off our thoughts of slavery. Let us welcome joyfully your loving embrace. And then, Father, please, please use us to share that love with the world. In Jesus' name, amen.